maybe the church would benefit from an analysis of its current normal? Or what would it mean to discern a new normal for the church? Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, a podcast for the pastor theologian. We're brought to you by LSTN Sound, a product for the project, helping folks here around the world. Click over on the website to LSTN Sound, enter Pathological when you get ready to check out and receive a discount. Some of the finest headphones you'll ever wear. And brought to you by Oikos Handmade. Handmade products that are custom made, fit to order. And go ahead and get your uh, gifts now. Get get their orders in. Choose your colors. Choose your project. Enter Pathological when you check out, and you'll also receive a discount there. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to have Tom Ingram, author of The New Normal, a diagnosis the church can live with. When you get through listening to this podcast, I think you'll find it pretty interesting and fascinating. Let me encourage you to share it with someone you know, some church leader who's in, who's involved in pastoral work or pastoral ministry. Even lay folks who are involved in pastoral ministry could benefit from the insights and the conversation that we have on the podcast today. So here's the podcast, and thanks for listening. Hello, this is Todd Littleton with Pathological, a podcast for the pastor theologian. Today on the podcast, I'm excited to have uh, uh, my friend uh, Tom Ingram on. We're going to talk about uh, his new book, The New Normal. It's actually not new. It's been out. But as I've learned uh, reading books, sometimes in our rush to um, uh, get uh, word out about a book, and I'm not talking about authors, but I'm talking about us readers, we don't have enough time to really stew over the book. In fact, uh, we've uh, our social media has really driven the uh, way uh, new books get treated. And if someone of prominence doesn't come out immediately and give a grand endorsement, uh, these poor authors kind of get stuck. And then what happens about 12 months later, someone really takes some time with a book, thinks through it, and they come back and go, wow, this is a gem here. I I cannot believe that I have... I've missed that. I've got several friends who've had that experience. I'm not saying Tom has, but I'm saying I really uh, have stewed over a new normal. I, I was privileged to read it uh, pre-publication. I've, I've, uh, Tom and I have talked about it, but I come back to it, and there's some things in the book I want to draw out that Tom does, and uh, that's where we're going to go today. So, Tom, thanks for uh, getting on Skype with me and, and having a conversation about your book and your project. Well, my pleasure. I'm happy to be here, and Appreciate all you do, Todd. Well, one of, one of the things I wanted to talk about, because sometimes pastors and, and church leaders, uh, Tom, they are inundated with all kinds of information. And I remember uh, back when George Barna was producing his annual um, uh, statistical analysis of the state of the church and church culture, and it usually provided uh, resources, uh, sometimes even fodder, for particular arguments about where the church was going, how people read the Bible, how they participated, how it influenced their faith. But you uh, undertook uh, in kind of some uh, research format something, something different than I think most do. Most statistical analyses uh, are um, uh, qualitative or quantitative. And they tend to be uh, via robocalls or um, a print kind of inter- uh, review. 
And then those things are kind of collated into their categories and so on. But you did something something different uh, in New Normal. You got online and you asked some questions. Can you tell us a little bit what inspired that idea? Sure. It was, uh, it was really inspired kind of from a problem I was having in conversations with my friends. And it, a lot of you have probably experienced this, but I, I was noticing that it was becoming more and more difficult to even approach a conversation about Christianity. And these are people I've known for years, and, you know, they, they asked me, like, well, so what are you doing? Well, this is what I've been doing. But whenever I would bring it up, all of a sudden they weren't interested, and sometimes they got maybe a little hostile and shut the conversation down. It just turned adversarial, and all I was really wanting to do was talk about something I was interested in, not try and put a sales pitch on them to uh, accept Jesus today over lunch or you're no longer <laughs> right. my friend. Or right, stuff, right. You know. So I just made me curious, and the curiosity was, why Why is this? Why is why are we getting in this position where we can't even talk about Christianity to our friends? You know, we're becoming the bad guys. Why is that? And so um, what I did, I, you know, I'm sure everyone would do the exact same thing I did, but I set up three, uh, three websites. One of them was called, uh, well, two primary websites. One of them was called 10 Things I Hate About Christians. And the other one was called 10 Things I Hate About Church. And I uh, publicized them on social media as best I could anywhere. And basically, I was just trying to gather feedback to find out if I could, if this would work, like what were people's biggest objections to Christianity and the church? Now, one thing I did, I mean, a lot of times in surveys or questionnaires, people the questions are asked in a certain way, you know, typically in something like this, one would say, uh, tell us something you don't like about the worship service or, or tell us something you don't like about the people. I felt like if I did that, I was kind of leading and pointing people in a certain direction. So to my detriment, which made it much harder to kind of analyze the data once it all came in, it's, I just posted the website, told what it was about. And, uh, put 10 slots on there for 10 things people could write what they didn't like or what they quote unquote air quote hated about uh, church or Christianity. And the, uh, the book kind of sprang from that. Well, when, uh, when you uh, did that in retrospect, uh, would, would that be something that um, would fit kind of a crowdsourcing model for information? Well, I, it was, it was my first attempt at crowdsourcing before I knew what crowdsourcing was. <laughs> this was early on in my exploration of that. Now, now I've become a big fan of crowdsourcing if done uh, properly. And we kind of misuse the terms to some degree now. Crowdsourcing as just any online event or uh, fundraising or whatever that involves a group of people, we call that crowdsourcing. But in reality... The uh, academic term is called distributed co-creation, oh. and there's certain rules that should be followed for uh, to help the effort be successful rather than just it's, – it's different than a poll. A poll is like right. you're just asking people their opinion on like, well, you like uh, ketchup or uh, salsa on your eggs. Well, there's no discussion. There's no back and forth. Right. There's no uh, let's find out the best one. You're just trying to find out what more people like. Well, that's – not crowdsourcing. Crowdsourcing is more interactive. But yes, this was is kind of a crowdsourcing uh, 
attempt before I knew what crowdsourcing was or how to do it right. It, it was basically just open up the gates, tell me what you think, and uh, people did, and a lot of it was not very nice. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I, well, and and so when uh, when you kind of uh, collated all that information, you came up with uh, uh, kind of where to go in addressing the book, and we're we'll get to some things, you know, uh, uh, toward the end. But I, I want to kind of stay with some of the things you did in building out how you wrote the book. So one of the things I was real intrigued by was is is when uh, uh, I was getting. Uh, an awareness or understanding of the way you used the new normal as really a, uh, a metaphorical um, uh, sort of uh, piece. Uh, and you actually used um, your wife's vocation as kind of an illustration to sketch out uh, or lay over what you had discovered and where you wanted to go. Can you can you tell our, our listeners a little bit uh, about kind of was <clears throat> was that sort of a something that had been in your mind or as you were trying to think how am I going to communicate maybe in a positive way to get uh, Christians' attention and the church's attention here's kind of a way that might break down some traditional barriers so I'll talk about it this way what what, what kind of drove that well you know at the end of the research when I kind of pulled the plug on the research and said all right here we have the data, the information, and we had like 825 people, 825 contributions to the uh, 10 Things Project, if you will. But uh, it was interesting. The conclusion was interesting. What people said I thought was valid. But then, I mean, how do you tell that story? How does that, how do I make this, this is interesting to me, but how do I make this interesting to somebody else? Not everybody else is going to be enjoy looking at this information and going, wow, that's cool. I get it. You know, and so I love stories. I never really fancied myself as a storyteller, but if I'm going to read something, I like a connective thread that runs through it, not just a lot of information. And so in kind of in that quest, I just stumbled upon thinking about it from a new way. And, and it does, you're right, it, correct. It spills or springs from my wife's work, she's a diagnostic neurophysiologist. She has a diagnostic process that she follows when they're trying to figure out what is uh, wrong with someone, what their malady is, and it's a process. It's very methodical, and all of a sudden, it just all made sense that if, if I just sh shifted this 10 degrees, uh, this, this is a process to uh, explaining through it. So that's what we did in the book. It, kind of approached it from her perspective. You know, there's steps they go through. One of the steps is uh, if somebody walks into the office, they take a uh, patient history. Mm -hmm. You know, you want to find out what's been going on in the past. And, and then they talk about how does this affect your life? I mean, what, what are you, have you been doing to deal with this? You know, how have you adapted? You, and we can talk about more of these later, sure. but this is just kind of the overview. And then they do diagnostic testing to figure out what's going on, which is where my research, the research, the 10 things right. research fit in. And then typically, if they just don't know off the top of their head what's wrong, they do a literature review. They consult the literature to help perform a proper diagnosis. And then after that, they come up with a treatment plan. And uh, that's the point that they really, that's the critical point in the patient's recovery because that's where they have to decide what their new normal, the new normal, is going to be? Is the new normal going to be me in this afflicted 
state that my future is a downward slope, that I'm just going to be dealing with this and trying my best to survive? Or am I going to engage in the rehabilitation plan, do the work, change my eating habits, exercise, whatever it is, do the work to have a different new normal, a new normal that, that really involves life rather than a trajectory of death. Oh, that's a perfect so, uh, that, that, that's the new normal, and that's the choice, and that's really the critical thing because patients get presented with these options. And in the book, we kind of look at the church as a patient, sure. uh, where the, we are the body of Christ, actually. So a patient, but the, the patient is the, is the one that has to decide which new normal they're going to pursue. That's excellent, Tom. And and I think that that I want to make sure that those who are uh, uh, happen to listen in, that this particular uh, way that you draw out this information and then proceed to kind of uh, take us through those steps, uh, all the while maintaining this this idea of a new normal as, as a as a metaphorical sort of uh, process for a very real experience. Uh, indeed helps break down some barriers. I wonder, um, we haven't talked much about you personally, and a lot of times in interview uh, settings, they say, well, I just get right to it. But I, I, th- I think that, that one thing that you um, have in your background that is looking for that connective piece you were talking about certainly has to do with um, the way, at least this is my, my, my interpretation, your uh, background as a musician, looking for those uh, connective pieces. You've done recording. You've done production. You, so you you have kind of some natural antenna for how do we connect. Is, is, is that fair? Well, it's interesting you would make that observation. That back in the day when I was a musician, I typically worked on instrumental things, scoring for uh, video or TV things that I didn't have to write any words because I didn't have anything to say, right. I guess. And all of a sudden, now I, I can't stop talking <laughs> <laughs> or, or writing about these things. So, But one thing I came to realize in the process, you know, people are saying, well, did you always want to write? No, I, I had never had any intention of writing. But to me, at least, whether it's music or the art, I mean, it's the same, same thing, really. And music... Yes. We, you start out with a theme, and you introduce the theme, and then you build upon that theme, and you add different elements, different instruments onto it. Then perhaps you circle back around and remind people of the theme. And then as it works through the song, you hopefully bring it all together in the end, and it all makes sense. And, I, and it, was, it was a fun day that I had that realization. It's like, oh, I'm doing the same thing I always do. I'm just doing it with words now rather than... And tonal music, sure, and I, and I think that I that was that's just an observation I made as we we, we met, kind of kept talking right. and, and that sort of thing. Right. And I thought, you know, those sort of uh, background things are always preparatory, you know, for right. um, observations we make, and then and then we get kind of a passion and an interest about okay, so what can I do? And and I know that that you spent some time with uh, Lynn doing your T men, and. Right. Um, He's always struck me as very, uh, uh, very passionate about the church, the shape of the church, the condition of the church. A lot of his, you know, uh, early uh, books uh, were aiming at, you know, let's get to a better place. 
And and I figure that the, the the kind of the intersection of your passion of 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 these discoveries, and then uh, I've I've always found Lynn to be quite the the creative and inspiring kind of guy. Uh, right. Did did that uh, your work um, with Lynn? Uh, how did that factor in to kind of your your thinking about the church and the future of the church? Well, as as we all should know, our life experiences all contribute toward that, those things that happen in the future. It prepares us just like this. Would I have ever guessed that being a musician would prepare me to write, write books right. about Christianity in the church? Right. No way. But in retrospect, I look back and it all makes sense. So looking forward, I mean, I, yes, Lynn was instrumental in my uh, discovery of this. I met Lynn and, and we became friends for who knows what reason i have no idea why he sees in me but uh anyway and just talking to lynn getting to know lynn and he's the one that actually encouraged me to pursue the doctorate which again was never on the radar right. 10 years ago if you would have said hey tom you're gonna go to grad school and have a doctor of ministry degree in semiotics and future studies <laughs> i would have just you know laughed it, it made no sense but here i am and you're right lynn looks at the world differently than most of us but it's a good place and, and one of the great things about him is he tries to uh get us to join him where where he is not just tell you this and uh, this is what you should do it is more uh, participatory and uh yeah the studies with lynn were instrumental in that and if nothing else just having a guy like glenn sweet have expressed some degree of confidence and enthusiasm that I might have something to say. I mean, that was a huge, good grief. Lynn Sweet thinks what I said made sense. That's right. cool. And, yeah. No, no <laughs> doubt. Maybe, no. maybe it does make sense. Uh, so anyway, it was a it was a big encouragement. And I, without that, I I wouldn't wouldn't be here. I yeah. Think. Well, I I I remember uh, reading. Uh, I'm trying to remember uh, which book it was, but he ta- where he talked about epic and participatory was. You know the P in epic for Lynn, right. and and I think that that's really uh, well drawn out in what you're working toward in the book. That that you aren't really um, uh, pointing a finger at as much as as you've already described it. What are you going to do? What are you going to do? So, Tom, when uh, when I think about it, I I was thinking about. Uh, your trajectory and where you were going. And when I think about uh, uh, counseling over the years, I, I think about the uh, realization that as much as I try to put together a plan of action, point to resources, that it really depends on the, the person seeking the uh, uh, relationship, the counseling relationship. It's really incumbent on them to uh, decide that they can only fix what's internal to them, that no external kind of force. So you're saying a lot the same thing about the church, that what you discovered in your uh, research and then combined with your passion and your interest, and Lynn says, hey, uh, you've got something to say. Now what you're really doing is saying, okay, the church here is, here's your uh, moment of decision. Right. Well, and it is a decision. The decision is, are we comfortable with the trajectory that the church is on? Are we comfortable with losing our voice in the culture, culture, you know, being marginalized to the sidelines, not even uh, players in the game, not, not, not never allowed to get off the bench and get in the game. Uh, and so, you know, 
The question is, are we comfortable with that? And if we are, then our new normal is this continued decline. But if we're not comfortable with that, and I don't think many of us are comfortable with that, then we've got to do something different. You know, we, we have to somehow regain the confidence of the uh, culture that our, our views, our faith uh, matters and is worthy of being considered moving forward. No, that's, that's, that's a great uh, uh, illustration, especially for pastors and church leaders who hopefully will be listening in, uh, to <clears throat> once and for all uh, recognize we've got to really move past uh, only analyzing um, what you described as you, you, you got to find out what your history was, what the patient history was. So we can get mired in that particular analysis and never move forward to what were uh, what would move us forward in a different trajectory. Right. And I really do like the way you um, uh, state it that that um, in fact in fact it's it's almost actually amplifying the responsibility that. A church that makes its discovery, and, and whether that's an individual church is the, or the church at, at large, the, the church that decides that it will continue on its trajectory has then decided on its new normal and as such really can't evaluate itself really by the past if they've decided, well, we're, we're fine with that. That's just the normal thing because that that's... Um, uh, detaches us from the memory of what once was because we're oh we're fine with with normal as it is. That's right. kind of scary to me, Tom. Well, it is. When one of the one of the metaphors, I, you know, one of the things we talk about it in the book is you know when a typically when a patient ha, in my wife's practice when a patient has some malady, say for example uh, they come in with hearing loss, well. This just didn't happen immediately. There's been a gradual decline in hearing. And typically the first response to realizing that I'm having a problem hearing is not to go see an audiologist and get hearing aids. The response is that uh, they push the burden of their malady off on others. And what I mean by that, for example, if you ever had a, a grandpa or something that was hard of hearing, what do they do? They, you go to visit them, the TV is cranked up so loud you can't even talk. Right. Because they, they're doing that. So you're suffering the consequences because they won't get a hearing aid. Or they're constantly asking you to repeat. Well, what'd you say? What'd you say? And so, you know, it's their problem, but they're pushing the solution off onto you. You're, you're, it's your fault. You're just not talking loud enough. If you just speak more clearly, I can understand what you're saying. You know, all that type of thing. And then so... Say the day, typically what happens is there's a moment where someone in the family, at least in the hearing loss thing, just says, that's it. You're going to go get hearing aids and makes, it, <laughs> and makes right. a demand that they're going to go do this. And so they do. They go get hearing aids and they put the hearing aids in. And, that, and that's really where they're at this decision point of the new normal. You know, are they going to wear the hearing aids? You know, which a lot of people say you have to get used to, you know, it's uncomfortable at first. But I mean, are they going to do that or are they going to take them out, go back to business as usual and let other people deal with it? Well, I, I mean, it, I think in some degree, in some instances, I mean, that's like what we're doing in the in the church. We're blaming culture. We're blaming media. We're blame We're blaming these other people. But when it's really our problem. Yes. And we're pushing off, you know, the. The, the responsibility by saying it's their fault that this is happening. Well, maybe it's not their fault. Maybe it's our fault, and they're just making us aware of uh, what's going on. 
I think it's a great illustration, a, a great uh, a, analogy to help us uh, understand uh, where we're, where really the responsibility is. You know, you mentioned a while ago that um, your uh, graduate work was in part in semiotics. Can can you can you give us a a very kind of uh, simple definition of exactly what what uh, that is for those who might be unaware? Well, there's the <laughs> it's a complicated area that covers a lot of things. It's, it's basically semiotics. The best definition that I've come up been able to uncovered is the study of meaning and how it's communicated. Yeah. Now that relates to a lot of different things. The the general semiotics has to do with signs and and I often when I say that people jump at least in Christians they jump to biblical signs but sure. it's not those were signs <clears throat> there's signs everywhere we can't live without signs and a sign from a semiotic points of view consists of two two things there's a signifier and then there is that which is signified by the signifier so something has meaning uh if something conveys meaning and we receive the meaning and that's oftentimes up to interpretation it's uh you know it, it's contextual sometimes it, it varies and a part of the the studies under lynn were like kind of heighten our semiotic awareness to these signs that surround us that we perhaps aren't even aware of one of my, one of the kind of a little joke that i oftentimes use in this situation is tell people, you know, this guy's driving down the highway, he gets pulled over by a highway patrolman and for speeding, he was going 75 into 60 mile per hour zone and the highway patrolman walks up to the car and the guy, you know, tells him, you know, you were speeding and the, and the guy says, well, I mean, do you guys ever give warnings? He goes, oh yeah, we do. They're all up and down the highway. It says speed limit 60 miles an hour. <laughs> you know, well, the signs were there. That's right. They just ignored That's exactly the signs. Right. Yeah. So, but everything is a sign that, I mean, gives us meaning. We extrapolate meaning from signs and we're surrounded by signs. We can't really communicate without signs. Yes. Yes. I, I, I have a friend who also did his uh, graduate work with Lynn and he uh, told me one time that Lynn said that we, we need to develop great semioticians. Right. Uh, and, uh, and so in, in a, in a sense, you are calling attention to the signs that the church should have been paying attention to but interpreted or received different meanings from. Or in the case of the analogy of driving down the highway uh, in a 60-mile-an-hour zone doing 75, we just ignore the signs. We ignore the signs, or uh, back to another example in the book of of, uh, a patient that comes in to see my wife complaining of pain. Well, pain is is a symptom. Pain isn't a, a malady. Right. Pain is a symptom of something. But typically, patients deal with the pain. They try and medicate the pain away until the pain reaches to the point where they no longer can do that. And in my view, I think the church is to the point that we can no longer ignore the pain. We can no longer metaphorically medicate it away in a variety of ways which we try and make ourselves seem important to the culture when we're really not, if that makes sense. No, no, it really does. Well, so 
we've got a we've got a process. We we've got a diagnosis. We've got right. a, an, an overlaid uh, sense of um, uh, here's how to kind of uh, arrive at some suggestions. You do that. And really, you're, uh, again, calling attention to saying, so what are you going to do? What's your new normal going to be? And, um, and then you get to where we all are interested, I think. Uh, and I, I don't want to in any way uh, insinuate to the listener that you can go read the last chapter of Tom's book and then you don't need any more. What I mean, what I mean, next to the last chapter. Yeah, that's right. Uh, uh, What I, what I mean to aim for is that we tend to be really good at raising objections. We, we who are patients often have, well, I know that I should do this, but, and so your chapter, which, uh, uh, you were telling me you, you actually originally had hoped would kind of make the title. I think it would have been fantastic. Um, I, I would have loved to have seen like 50 of them on an end cap somewhere. But um, <laughs> is your big butt the problem? Right. And, uh, of course, frankly, the reason I think that that would be a great uh, eye-catching thing is, is you know, uh, we are in and have been in the midst of you know, a greater sense of health consciousness and uh, 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 raising awareness to the factors of obesity and such. And we could say that in some sense the church has uh, lost its um, uh, ability to exercise well, has not been aware of its own condition, has, as you described it, pushed responsibility off to other places, and as you call attention, you really, I think, draw out some of the, the, the things that we have to really actually, I think, work harder at, and that is countering the big butt. Right. Well, it is interesting that the, the original title of the book was, Is Your Big Butt the Problem?, which I love. <laughs> I, love I love the double meaning oh, things. Yes. And that, the first place people would always go is your big butt as in your backside. Right. But it, it only has one T. Yes. It's, 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 is your big butt the problem? So what do we mean by that? Well, we talked about, the, for example, the, the person with hearing problem, and they have the hearing aid, and, but they, they have to decide on their new normal. But oftentimes it's, uh, well, I, you know, I would wear it, but it, it, it's trouble. I keep having to replace the batteries. I would, but, you know, we have these, these buts, and we have them in, in life and at church. I mean, you're a pastor. You try and get people like, hey, we're going to be, uh, you know, working in the clinic here on Wednesday night or whatever. Why don't you join us? Well, I would, but I mean, we, we're, we have all these buts that stand between us and more than likely what we know we should be doing, but, but we wow. don't do it. Well, and so if you were going to... Um uh, point to what you think to to continue to play on the imagery. What what's what what would you say is exemplifies our biggest butt, the one that seems to maybe rear its head more than than uh, uh, most others. Well, I, I I think probably the big two is uh, I don't have time. I would, but I'm too busy, or uh, I would. But I can't afford that. I mean, it's right. the time and money 
And uh, when, when really, that's likely not even the, the real but. The but is that I don't want to do it. Yeah. The but is I don't want to get involved in, in supporting that. The but is I am a little leery. I've tried this before, and it, it turned out badly, so I don't want to do it. I mean, we didn't sit here and talk the rest of the day on buts, the things sure. that stand between us and what we would do, even on the exercise Thing, you know, going to the gym in the morning, we were talking about that. It's like, well, I would, but, you know, I can't. We butt ourselves to death. Yes, we do. And it's only when we get over our butts, both figuratively and literally, right. and get off of our butts, that uh, we do anything with our lives. We, you know, we can let the butts rule or, or what we need to be doing. Yeah, and I think maybe the thing that um, might be helpful is you I, I did have your last chapter out of <clears throat> out of place, but your last chapter is is crossroads and and you really you really leave us at that at that point. So maybe help us think through um, the factors that you think are important of, of getting uh, beyond the those buts and and what I mean by that is, like you said, we could talk for hours probably about all the different uh, ways we could, oh, but this or but that. And, and like right. you described it, you know, we, we, let all, all, we let our butts both figurative and, li- and literally get in the way. Right. But at some place to get you to the crossroads, to get you to the point of saying, okay, now you have to move beyond that but. What... How how do you push us? What what do you what's what's the therapist say? What's what's the the uh, an analyst say to the patient? Well, it's complicated, but I don't think, as a rule, we we allow our butts to get in the way of our passions. Mm. Mm. The things that fire us up, that we believe in, that excite us. It seems like the butts don't really get in the way. I mean, somebody who says, well, I can't, I would, but I don't have time. Well, this, and this is nothing against video games, just an example. They may spend four hours that night playing video games or or something, you know. So they have time, but they're just choosing not to use it in that particular way. So we don't allow our butts to get in the way of our passions. So the solution, at least in my mind, is we have to help people discover their their passions in in the church to kind of open up some gateways. For example, our church does these five things. Find one of those that you like and get involved in. Well, maybe those five things don't speak to me, but something else really does. Well, then re- rather than just... Uh, let that person remain on the sidelines, but the church serves as kind of a place to empower this person and others of like mind to pursue this passion. And I guarantee that if it's something that they themselves are passionate about or have developed a passion for, their, their butts aren't going to get in the way. Right. And so I, I think I hear you offering a, a great sense of um, uh, not... I don't. I, want, I hate calling things a solution because it's, as you describe it, more complicated. 
but it seems to be that you're pointing us to open ourselves up to greater adventure and greater possibility. Right. That that if if it is if if the strictures of the church have been there are these five things, you are saying, oh, there are more possibilities. And and maybe part of that new normal that you're drawing our attention to is just that. What are those possibilities? You you pose this question toward the end of the book. Uh, are you ready to get better? And I really I really think that that's a question that ought to sit with the church. Right. Are you ready to get better? And um, and and that's where I, that's why what what kind of triggered that in my mind that um, what you have described brings us to the brink of uh, saying, will we press, will that new normal include new possibilities? Not right. re, not simply rehashing or reifying old patterns. Right. Is that fair? Yeah, maybe that should be the topic of the next book. Yes, people do not let the bets get in the way of their passions. For example, I recently joined an organization at Oklahoma State University, the Master Gardeners. Yeah. I, I didn't know much about it, but these are some of the most passionate people you will ever see in your lives who donate hundreds of hours during the year for free. And they do it because they are passionate about plants and growing things and beauty. And they didn't have to be forced. They'd get up at 7 o'clock in the morning and be up planting flowers in the rain. You know, <laughs> why? Because it is a passion of theirs. Now, not that the church has to go all become gardeners, which, but I do think, which wouldn't be a bad idea. No, it wouldn't be a bad idea. But if you can under, uncover people's passions or set up systems in which they can uncover their passions uh, and en encourage those passions. I, I think, I just feel like the church is this sleeping giant that is just waiting to be released. And our country really needs to see us in action more than in uh, talking about action. Oh, I, Perhaps. I think you are absolutely right. So, and, I, and I think maybe the, the, way to tie a couple uh, of things you've said together is to say that um, bemoaning being on the sidelines is futile if you don't, one, recognize you're on the sidelines and then live into the passion that you say you have. Right. So that would lead us, I think, to say, ah, oh, there is better. Well, there is better, and uh, I think, I mean, the sad reality is there's going to be some that are going to choose to stay on the sidelines mm -hmm. and, 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 you know, circle the wagons, feel that the cultural is too hostile, they can't deal with it, we're just going to retreat to the safety of the sanctuary and ride this out as our population declines. Right. And, and some other church will buy the church 20 years from now and we'll be, we'll be done. But there's others. I have to believe there's others. I've, I've witnessed others that are like, no, we, we have to do the business as usual. It has not been working. Mm -hmm. And so we're going to have to do this differently. And uh, like I said, I just feel like there's a, a sleeping 
giant out there of people of faith that are, if inspired, if allowed to pursue the passions that speak to them, and rather than saying, well, we don't do that here, perhaps pause and realize that maybe God is calling them to this, and the best way we could serve God is to encourage them in pursuing their passion for this area of ministry or care or whatever. Yeah. Uh, rather than uh, rather than narrowing the the gates, we should open the gates. Good. And I, I think um, uh, as we come to the end of our our time together, I think that's a great uh, challenge. And what I want to say to you is is we need uh, you to continue your work as an instigator. <laughs> and and I think that really um, w- what. A lot of people are looking for are uh, these loud, um, and I'm going to use the word, and, and I have to nuance it, but these loud prophetic voices, and and I think we need prophetic voices. I don't know that we need, we, I don't know that we need loud and and screaming, um, uh, and so that's why I chose the word instigator. I, I think right. that that when uh, we look and assess the condition of the church. We need people located to instigate us to thinking about, as you describe it, what a possible new normal could look like right. and what it would entail. So I want to say thank you for your book. I want to say thank you for the way in which you um, make the whole your, your ideas accessible. And so while you, for instance talked about trying to grasp semiotics for some, you actually put it in such a way that helps us get uh, a a handle on how to to look at the signs, how to go through this process in our own local churches, as well as to kind of see the church in its larger scope. And I I, I appreciate it, Tom. I want to say thank you. Well, thank you for your support, for having me on here, and it's been fun talking to you. Yeah. Well, so... Whatever the next book is uh, that you've got in your mind that's just boiling and roiling, keep instigating us so that uh, we can maybe together partner with uh, all who are interested in waking that giant for the good of our world. Can I give a plug to that book? Absolutely. Go right ahead. (laughs) I would be happy about it. Well, I don't know when it's going to come out. It's a book I'm actually co-writing with Lynn Sweet, and uh, it's had several titles. The current title is called The Book of Signs. That's actually, yeah, the book of signs. Nice. That's right. And uh, it essentially looks, again, signs, semiotics, but it looks at it from the point of a uh, tracker, an animal tracker. You know, animal trackers have to be masters of reading, reading the signs, reading the trails, the footprints, the broken branches, the, you know, all the different things that tell them who they're following, if they're following what they're after, how far away they are, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And we're relating that to, as Jesus followers, what are the signs that the one we're following is actually Jesus? You know, Jesus signposts along the trail that keep us on the trail of, uh, as followers of Christ. So oh. uh, looking forward to it. Well, n- just keep me posted. We'll get right. back on and talk about that one, all right? <laughs> Will do. Fantastic. Hey, Tom, thanks again, man. Keep up the good work. All right. Well, thank you, Tom. You too. Thank you for listening. Pathological is a affiliate podcast with Roundtable Media Group. If you'd like to advertise with us, 
contact me at Todd at roundtablemediagroup.com. If you found the podcast helpful today, click over to iTunes. Give us a five-star rating and review. It helps us get found and let folks know that there is a podcast for the pastor theologian. Till next time, peace.